We're moving along in Mark. There's just chapters 15 and 16 left. We'll be finished with Mark by the end of August. We'll be on to new things. Mark chapter 15, Lord, we thank you that you have a plan to speak to us today. We thank you, God, that you are not only able to speak to us, but you are willing, that you are longing, that, Lord, as we have come into this place, your house, you're here waiting, ready to meet us. And I pray right now that you would raise the level of expectation of hearing from you today. I pray that you would raise the level of faith to respond to you today, to receive from you your word. I ask, Father, that you would send the Holy Spirit to anoint the word as it goes forth and to work powerfully in our hearts, to make us doers of the word. Make us wise, Lord, in that which is good and innocent in that which is evil. Train us now for righteousness. Pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, as we finish up chapter 14, we saw some big events take place there. We saw the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. We saw, of course, the arrest of Jesus. We saw one of the trials of Jesus as he was before the high priest. We saw the denial of Jesus by Peter. And we saw our Lord twice confessing his deity. As we move into chapter 15, we are still in the early hours of the morning, perhaps still pre-dawn. And today on our text, we're going to see the completion of his trials. We're going to see Jesus confessing to be the King of the Jews, even as he confessed to be the Son of God last week. We are going to see the public cry and demand for his execution. And we are going to see the public beating and mocking of Jesus that took place. And we're going to talk about the benefits that are afforded the Christian through the beating or the suffering of Christ Jesus. Mark chapter 15, verse 1, take a look. And early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council, that is a Sanhedrin, that ruling council over Israel that we've spoken of many times, immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him up to Pilate. We saw last week that he had a religious trial. And after the religious trials that Jesus underwent, there is a series of civil trials that he will experience. When we put all the Gospels together, we see that in that night, Jesus actually went through six different trials. Remember that there is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for a reason. They all highlight certain things and include certain details that the others may omit. They were writing to different audiences for different purposes. It would be like if myself and three others all told the story of the same event uh, in a barbecue that we were at or something like that to one person. That one person, if they just heard from one of us, would get a bit of the story. It would be true. Because some things were omitted doesn't make it false or contradictory. You would get a true account, but as you got another account, you would get more of the story. And as another one came in even more, and as four came, you would have a more full picture of the account. And so it is with the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when we put them together, we get a full picture of the life of Jesus. And we see that he underwent six trials. I just want to highlight for you briefly what those trials are. Three religious before the Jewish leaders and three civil before Roman leaders. His first trial was before Annas. Now Annas 
was the father-in-law of the man who was the current high priest, who was Caiaphas. Annas was a high priest in Israel from the year 6 to 15 A.D. And when the Romans uh, at one time got a little more heavy-handed, they removed Annas. He was a little too religious. He was a little too legitimate. He was a little too, bit, a little too much zealous for him. And so they removed Annas, and they replaced him with Caiaphas. But Annas was still respected by the Jews and recognized by the Jews. So the first place that Jesus was taken after his arrest was to the house of Annas and Caiaphas, and first before Annas, the former high priest, still respected by the Jews. After that, he went before Caiaphas, who was the current high priest. He was the one put in office in replacement of Annas by the Romans. He was a little bit of a Roman puppet. And so Jesus goes before Annas, and then he goes before Caiaphas, and then he goes before the Sanhedrin. And that's what we saw in verse 1 of our text, that he was before the whole council. You remember that the trials in the middle of the night before Annas and Caiaphas were illegal trials, not only the way that they unfolded being illegal, but the fact that they were in the middle of the night without the entire Sanhedrin and not in the official meeting place of the Sanhedrin. Remember that they declared that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. And now to ratify that or to make that legitimate, they take him before the whole council, the ruling body of Israel, the Sanhedrin. And the result of all those three religious trials is that Jesus was found guilty of blasphemy because he claimed to be the Son of God. Indeed, in the garden, you'll remember, he claimed to be God. He said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And they fell backwards as he expressed that he was the great I am of Exodus 3.14. So they found him guilty of blasphemy. He wasn't actually guilty of blasphemy because he really was the Son of God. He really is God in the flesh. But they, not believing it, declared him to be guilty. And blasphemy under Jewish law was punishable by death. But you uh, students of history will remember that when Rome began to occupy Israel, they removed from them the power of capital punishment. They could no longer carry out the death penalty. They had to take it before Rome uh, in order to do it as a way of subduing their authority in the land. And so having gone through these three religious trials, all of the representative body of Israel agreeing he is guilty of blasphemy, punishable by death, they say, well, we can't carry out the death penalty. We've got to take him before Pilate's. And so the first civil trial is before Pilate, and we saw that in verse 1. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. He was placed there by the Romans. Um, Israel in that day was broken up into about five diff- or four different provinces. If you were to visualize in your mind a map of Israel, those of us going this December ought to be looking at a map of Israel every day, getting familiar with the places. In the middle of Israel, to the north, we have the Sea of Galilee. And then you have the Jordan River that flows down to the Dead Sea. And off to the west of the Dead Sea is Jerusalem. The area just to the southwest of Jerusalem and sort of encompassing is Judea. It is that region that Pontius was the governor of. Down below is the region of Idumea. As you move up, you go Idumea, Judea, and then remember Samaria, That's where Jesus encountered the woman at the well as he was leaving Jerusalem, going up to uh, Galilee. Above that, you have the area of Galilee. And to the east of the Jordan River was Decapolis. And so Galilee, Samaria, Judea, Idumea, 
Decapolis. We're going to see two of those governors come into play today. The first being Pontius Pilate. He was sort of a cruel guy when it came to the Jews, and he was despised by the Jews. One time early on in his governorship, he had his soldiers carry flags of Caesar into Jerusalem. Now, that was an insult to the Jews who still wanted to believe that God was their king. And they were declaring Caesar to be king in Jerusalem. It was really an outright, open, intentional insult on the Jewish people. Another time, when Pilate wanted to build an aqueduct, he raided the temple treasury. Those things that were brought by the people of Israel for the benefit of Israel took the money out of the temple treasury and used it to build an aqueduct. Those who protested, were beaten by Roman soldiers in plain clothing. Eventually, Pontius Pilate was fired for his heavy-handedness, and history records that he took his own life in misery. We see the trial before Pontius unfold in verse 2. It says, And Pilate questioned Jesus, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And answering, he said to him, It is as you say, or literally, you say. In other words, that's right. Verse 3. And the chief priests began to accuse him harshly. And Pilate was questioning him again, saying, Do you make no answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. It's very interesting that throughout all the trials of Jesus, whenever false accusations were brought his way, he never defended himself. We see that reflected in the book of Peter, chapter 2, that he did not revile in return. We see that as a fulfillment of prophecy, Isaiah 53, verse 7, that he was silent like a lamb before its shears, like a lamb led off to slaughter. In the midst of false accusations, he did not defend himself. But on the issue of truth, he spoke up every time. You remember that the high priest had asked him in chapter 14, are you the son of God? And he said, yes, I am. And you shall see the son seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds with glory. And now, are you the king of Jews? Yes, I am. Great lesson for us to learn there. That when false accusations come our way, we are not to always rush to be defenders of self. For Jesus, his actions spoke for him. His character spoke, and so it is to be for Christians. We should do right, and so that we might silence the slander of ignorant, foolish men, we're told in 1 Peter chapter 2. We ought to live lives that honor God and according to the laws of the land that we may silence those who slander us as Christians. The early church was slandered repeatedly. They were accused of... um, Uh, all sorts of things. They were accused of cannibalism. They were accused of orgies because they would engage in love feasts. It was Christians coming together in love to eat and at the communion table. And those outside would say, well, they're cannibals. They're eating the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they would say, it's an orgy going on as it was called the love feast. People do the same thing with the church today, don't they? Same thing with the church today. It may not be the same accusation, but oh, they're a cult or oh, they're crazy, or oh, they're this, or they're that. Listen, don't chase around false accusations. Just live a godly and holy life and speak the truth in love as Christ Jesus did, and God will work through that. Amen? It's the example we see in the Lord. It says in verse 3 that the chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Luke chapter 23, verse 2 tells us what the false accusations were. They said to Pilate that Jesus tried to mislead the nation, that he forbidden them to uh, pay taxes to Caesar, forbade them, excuse me, and that he was claiming to be the Messiah, a king. Now, he certainly wasn't misleading the nation. He's trying to lead the nation to righteousness. 
nor did he forbid to pay taxes. You remember that he said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, but render unto God that which is God. And the last accusation they claimed to be Messiah and a king was true. It is interesting that they use that verbiage, he claims to be a king, because that would mean something before Pilate. Pilate didn't care if someone claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. He didn't want to get overly concerning himself with Jewish affairs. But when someone claimed to be a king, that was treason in the land. Because the mantra throughout the Roman Empire was, there is no king but Caesar. He confessed to be the king of the Jews. That was the accusation brought before him. Turn to John 19 real quick, keeping your finger here. Starting in verse 7, we have a fuller story of this trial before Pilate. We see just how it goes. John 19, verse 7. The Jews answered Pilate, saying, We have a law, and by that law Jesus ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard this statement, he was more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium, that is the governor's official residence, and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered and said, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has a greater sin. Speaking of the Sanhedrin and the Jews there. Verse 12. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. There we see the accusation and the political manipulation played out by the religious leaders to force the hand of Pilate, though Pilate saw no error in the ways of Jesus. Verse 13. When Pilate therefore heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat of the place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was a day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They therefore cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is the same religious authority. These are the same people that were so insulted a few years earlier when Pilate brought pictures of Caesar into Yerushalayim. And they said, our king is Yahweh. Get that false king out of here. He is no God and he is no king. And now uniting against Jesus, they say, kill him. He claims to be the king. We have no king but Caesar. It is amazing how quickly the human heart can turn. So the accusation goes from blasphemy to treason, and it's at this point where Pilate now sends Jesus to Herod. He finds out that Jesus was from the area of Galilee. Herod was the tetrarch or the governor over Galilee, so Pilate sees an easy way out here and says, oh wait, it's out of my jurisdiction. Jesus is from Galilee, we'll send him to Herod. And so he has a trial before Herod, and Herod has the same experience. He finds no guilt in Jesus, says, I don't want to deal with him, and sends him back to Pilate. The third and final civil trial, the sixth and final trial Jesus will undergo. And we see that back in our text now. Mark 15, starting in verse 6. Between verse 5 and 6, he's gone to Herod, and now he's sent back to Pilate. Now, at the feast, he, that is Pilate, used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. And the man named Barabbas 
had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude went up and began asking Pilate to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. And Pilate answered and said to them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Pilate is still wanting to get out of what the Jews are demanding of him. Shall I give you Jesus? Shall I release him at this time? Verse 10, For Pilate was aware that the chief priests had delivered him up because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the multitude to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. And answering again, Pilate was saying to them, Then what shall I do with him who you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate was saying to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And wishing to satisfy the multitude, be careful of that one, that will so easily bring you to the place of betraying and denying the Lord, wishing to please people. And wishing to satisfy the multitude, though he knew what was right to do, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. So there was this custom in Israel at the time that at the Passover feast, uh, some of the rulers of Rome, here at Pontius Pilate, would release a prisoner to the Jews. You remember that Passover was a celebration of their freedom from Egypt when they had been brought out of oppression and out of slavery and now under the oppression of this government as a show of goodwill, they would release any prisoner that the Jews commanded every year at the Passover. And so they came and said, release for us one prisoner. And Pilate goes, okay, well, I'll give you Jesus. He's innocent. He's the king of the Jews. Here you go. And they say, no, we don't want Jesus. We want Barabbas. Barabbas was an insurrectionist, meaning he was a political zealot. He was a rebel against Rome. We're told that he was a thief in John chapter 18, verse 40. And we're told in our text that he was a murderer. He was a murderer and a thief. And when Israel was confronted with the Christ, they were unable to bear what they saw in themselves. Verse 10 says that Pilate knew that they delivered Jesus up because of envy. When they were confronted with the righteousness of Jesus, being able to unbear what they saw in themselves in the light of him, they chose darkness. They outright chose a murderer and a thief over the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Don't be too surprised. This is a way of humanity. Turn with me to John chapter 3, keeping your finger here. John chapter 3. Look in verse 19. Well, we'll start in verse 16. Jesus speaking, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Now, verse 19, and this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world. Who is the light? And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. 
For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. This is an incredibly revealing statement of Jesus Christ concerning the heart of man. That anytime someone rejects the truth of Jesus, remember that when Jesus is preached, the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. We can be confident that when the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit is convicting hearts. To convict means to convince of truth. They have no real grounds to reject the validity of the claims of Jesus Christ. The reason they do reject him according to the word of God is because they love the darkness instead of the light. And the reason they love the darkness is because their deeds are evil. Have you ever noticed that any place where evil unfolds, it's always in the darkness? When was the last time you saw a well-lit bar? It doesn't really happen, huh? interesting. Because their deeds were evil, they loved the darkness instead of the lights. The reason people reject Jesus is because he exposes their sin. And they don't want to deal with their sin. They want to do what they want to do. That is the heart of humanity. And that is the philosophy of Satan. Alistair Crowley, a couple centuries ago, a Satanist who first begin to write down sort of a doctrine of Satanism. Said the greatest commandment in Satanism is do what thou wilt. Whatever you want to do, do it. If it feels good, if it pleases you, whatever is right for you is the current manifestation of that satanic mantra. Whatever is right for you. Throwing out the idea of absolute truth, throwing out the light of Jesus Christ. Whatever may be right for you, whatever thou wilt, whatever you want to do, you do that. It's directly from the pit of hell. And because people want to do what they want to do, because they love their sin and they want to remain in it, they choose their own God. They create God in their own image. That's exactly what the Jews did when they chose Bar Abbas. They created a God in their own image. We want the murderer and we want the thief. It's interesting that Bar Abbas comes from two Aramaic words, Bar and Abba. Bar being son, Abba being father. Bar Abbas means son of father. It's sort of an analogy of an anonymous God. Jesus is the son of the father. They chose for themselves son of father, an anonymous God. That's what men do today. They choose their own God, be it their appetite, be it some possessions, be it some philosophy. They want a degree of anonymity with their God because they don't want him interfering in their lives. You see, Jesus interferes in people's lives. <laughs> he interferes in people's lives. But Barabbas, he's not going to bother anybody. They chose for themselves Barabbas rejecting the Son of God for the generic son of a generic father, an empty name. Once you reject the truth, it is a theological fact that you will begin to buy a lie. Once you reject the truth of Jesus Christ, you will begin to buy into the lies of Satan. Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. I think we have it on PowerPoint. Romans 1. 
28 through 32. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, it's supposed to say. And although they know the ordinance of God, they know what is right, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. It's sort of the mob mentality that was happening. This is a mob mentality that happens with our youth today, isn't it? It's that peer pressure rejecting the light because they love the darkness. They begin to fall into all these things that are listed here. And though there is eternity written in their hearts according to the Bible, though God has put in them a conscience, which is an innate sense of right and wrong, the conscience becomes seared as they repeatedly reject Jesus Christ and they begin to buy into the lie. That's what happened here with the Jews. They had rejected the Son of God and they went after Bar Abbas. And just as he was a murderer and a thief, they became murderers and thieves. And they cried out, crucify him. Verse 13 of our text. And they shouted back, or again, crucify him. The reason they did that was because they hated his righteousness. Christian, that's why it's so important that we preach about who Jesus is. Because it reveals sin. Jesus is the standard of righteousness. That's why it's so important that we fill our own hearts with the Word of God. Because the Word of God acts like a mirror, doesn't it? When we look into the Word of God, it reflects something back at us. And if you're a Christian, you know, I don't always like what I see in that reflection. Lord, transform me. Change me into the image of your Son. But for those who haven't been born again, what they see in the mirror of the Word of God, and may it be charged against us, Reality Carpenteria, the same thing that was charged against the disciples in Jerusalem when the church was birthed. This same council who was crying out for Jesus to be killed would bring Peter and James and John before them, and the accusation they would level is, you have filled Jerusalem with the teachings of Jesus. May that charge be leveled against us. You have filled this coastline with the teachings of Jesus. As we do, it is a mirror held up to humanity, and people don't always like mirrors. I was reading a commentary on the book of Mark by a guy named R. Kent Hughes. If you're ever looking for a a good commentary on a book that you're studying, something not too technical but full of good stuff, R. Kent Hughes is good, and he uses this illustration about a mirror. Listen. He says, Once an African chief happened to visit a mission station, Hanging outside the missionary's hut on a tree was a little mirror. The chief happened to look into the mirror and saw her reflection, complete with terrifying pain and threatening features. She gazed at her own frightening countenance and started back in horror, exclaiming, Who is that horrible-looking person inside that tree? Oh, the missionary said, It is not in the tree. The glass is reflecting your own face. The African would not believe it until she held the mirror in her own hand. She said, I must have the glass. How much will you sell it for? Oh, the missionary said, I don't want to sell it. But the woman begged until he capitulated, thinking it might be best to sell it to avoid trouble. So he named a price, and she took the mirror. 
exclaiming, I will never have it making faces at me again. She threw it down and broke it to pieces. This is precisely what the religious establishment did to Jesus. They would dash this mirror of their souls. So they nailed him to a cross only to find that this magnified the reflection. That's why it's so important that we reflect Jesus Christ. There is so much more at stake with regards to personal living than your own life. It's the life of others. It's the salvation of others. It's others seeing the glory of God through us. John chapter 15, Jesus speaks of this. John chapter 15, might want to go there. John chapter 15, starting verse 21. Jesus says, speaking of persecutions, John 15, 21. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. The light has come into the world, so to speak, exposing darkness. Jesus says that when he came, It revealed sinfulness to man. Verse 23. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Jesus reveals sin. Have you ever noticed how in any circle you can mention any religious leader and people just go, That's cool. You can talk about Muhammad. You can talk about Islam, though we see the fruit of Islam in our world every day. You can talk about Buddhism. You can talk about the New Age movement. You can talk about anything that you want to talk about in any context, public or private. And people usually have a, yeah, well, that's cool. But you mention the name of Jesus and people get angry. That ought to reveal what is truth. People always respond to the truth. There is an apathy when you mention these other things. You mention the name of Jesus, and there is always an angry response. Why? He reveals sin. He is the light and the mirror. That's why people say, don't preach to me. You say, I'm not preaching. I just said Jesus loves you. Don't preach to me. The Lord loves you. Stop it. And it goes the same way for the true followers of Jesus Christ. Look a few verses up now in verse 18, John 15, 18. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Because the Christians are called to and enabled to live in an otherworldly way. Our citizenship is in heaven, the book of Philippians says. Because we live in otherworldliness, a standard of righteousness, the world hates us because we're not like them. Timothy wrote to Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, and said, Indeed, all those who de- desire to live godly will experience persecutions. If you are living in an otherworldly way, 
with the idea that your citizenship is in heaven. In other words, upholding God's standard, God's righteousness, God's precepts, living and acting and breathing and moving according to those things, you will invoke the hatred of the world. Jesus said so. Very carefully, in your quiet time, before the Holy Spirit, with the Word of God open. Say, God, am I living in an otherworldly way? Because we're called to be salt and light. The Bible says that we are, when we live the Christian lifestyle, for those who are perishing, the aroma of death. If nobody is ever offended by your Christianity, you need to begin to wonder if it is evident in your life at all. Paul promised and said, indeed, all those who desire to live godly will experience persecution because we are salt and light. And when you want to be in darkness, light is not pleasant. And salt has a preserving aspect to it. Archbishop William Temple wrote this, the world would not hate angels for being angelic, but it does hate men for being Christians. It grudges them their new character. It is tormented by their peace and it is infuriated by their joy. When we are walking in holiness, the world begrudges us. When we are living in peace, though there is turmoil, though your world may be falling apart, when you have that peace that abides, they're tormented by it because they don't have that peace. What is that peace? Why are you so okay? And then when you have that joy, Jesus said, my joy I give to you. He said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, but my peace and my joy. When you have that joy that is beyond circumstances, the world is infuriated. Because that's all that the world wants is peace and joy. That's all they want. And they are looking for it to the point of death and they can't find it. And it is in Jesus Christ. That is why we must represent him rightly. It has not only to do with our own lives, but the salvation of men and women. And when we live a sloppy Christian life, we impede the work of the kingdom in our sphere of influence. There is so much at stake. There is eternity at stake. That's why we should be grateful when someone gets in our face and says, hey, brother, you're blowing it. Here's God's way. Here's your way. Repent. Don't be offended. Be blessed. Some time ago, I was working for uh, Channel Island Surfboards, the surfboard company that my family owns, and I, I had to do stuff for the trade shows that we would go to. And uh, at these surf trade shows, there's always these huge parties. And I was at one of these parties, and there was a surf movie premiere, and I was uh, the typical wallflower. I was standing against a wall, you know, because these parties were pretty wild, and I was a Christian. I was trying to walk accordingly. And some time ago, the Lord had called me to give up drinking alcohol altogether. That was his calling upon my life. And so I had done so. And I'm standing against the wall, just doing nothing, feeling very out of place, and everybody's partying and throwing the beers everywhere. <laughs> and this guy, you know, came up to me and went... <laughs> Pushed a beer in my face and went, here, drink it. I thought, no, man, I'm cool, no thanks. No, come on, drink it. And I had been around this guy several times before when he was drinking alcohol. And he said, come on, just drink it. And I said, no, man, I don't want it. And he said, drink it. I'm like, dude, I don't need it. And he goes, you make me feel so weak. 
Oh. Oh. What, what, do you, what do you mean? I make you feel so weak. Do you mean that this is something that you need and wish you could be free from, but don't know where to find freedom and strength? Brother, it's not me. It's Christ Jesus. I didn't say that. I just stood there with my mouth open. But as I reflected later on, that was a cry for peace in his life. That was a cry for a righteousness and what is right. That was a cry for joy. And when he saw my new character, he grudged it. When he saw my peace, it tormented him. When he saw my joy, it infuriated him. Yet not I, but Christ in me. It's not us. It's Christ in us. We are to reflect the light of Jesus Christ. He said, I am the light of the world. And then he said, you are the light of the world. Wait a minute. The Bible always contradicts itself. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But he said, you are the light of the world. It is not a contradiction. He is the big light. We are the little lights. It's like this relationship between the sun and the moon. When you go outside at night and there's a full moon here in Carpinteria, you might be down on the beach and you see the light of the moon. You say, look how beautiful it is. Look at the light of the moon tonight. Look at it upon the water. The moon is so wonderful. What light. And yet because we're very scientifically advanced, we know that the moon has no light of its own. We know that the rotation now is such that the world is out of the way and that the sun, though it is out of view, is shining its light on the moon and the moon reflects that light to the world. It's not that little light. That's just an old black rock floating around in space. It is the light of the sun being reflected off that old dead rock onto the world that seems so beautiful. And so it is with you and I. We need the light of the S-O-N, so shining upon our lives that it reflects the glory of Him onto this world. We're to reflect the big light. When that falls apart is when the world gets in the way. You enjoy a full moon for a while, but not for too long. Pretty soon the rotation is such that the world has now positioned itself between the moon and the sun that the moon has now gone dark. Keep the world far from you, the things of this world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. These things diminish your reflection of the light, the S-O-N. James said it this way. This is true and undefiled religion that we visit widows and orphans in their distress and keep ourselves unstained by the world. There's so much at stake that we keep ourselves unstained and don't let the world get between you and the sun. It's going to try every single day. You're too busy to pray. You're too busy to read the Bible. There's too much intimidation from these people to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. There is too much pressure to go along with the world. Don't make a stand for righteousness. The world is always going to try to get between you and the S-O-N. Keep yourself in the place of reflecting His lights. And you're a value in this world. Back to Mark. Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. 
Verse 13 again, and they shouted back, crucify him. But Pilate was saying to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And wishing to satisfy the multitude, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. After having Jesus scourged, we're familiar with this, aren't we? They would strip him naked. They would tie his arms around a post. And there he would be sort of hanging with his feet upon the ground. And the Roman soldiers who were trained to do so would take the cat of nine tails, which was a leather whip with nine little whips on it, with pieces of bone and metal woven into it. And they were trained to use these on the back of the victim. They would do it before crucifixion, which was a Roman way of carrying out capital punishment. But oftentimes the victim was killed during the scourging. Uh, you have all seen Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Mel made a conscious and purposeful decision to tone down the reality of scourging. As brutal as that was, as horrific as that was, it was not as radical as an actual scourging. You understand, when a Roman soldier scourged the victim that it ripped through his skin in such a way that the bones in the back were exposed. After the beating that Jesus took, every single vertebrae would have been visible. It would expose the inner organs. There would be his kidney and his spleen open for the world to see. It would have left his back quivering ribbons of flesh. It was much more horrific than Mel Gibson portrayed it. He made a decision and said, I can't possibly show that on the screen. Pilate had Jesus scourged. It goes on in verse 16. And the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. And they dressed Jesus up in purple, and after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they kept beating his head with a rod and spitting at him and kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they took, a pur- they took the purple off him and put his garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Jesus here is beaten severely now for the second time. Remember back in chapter 14, In verse 65, it says, And some begin to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, Prophesy. And the offers received him with blows with rods in the face. He's being severely beaten and he's being mocked. I want you to turn to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Prophecy about the Messiah here, about Jesus Christ. The Lord says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Now, historically, Israel has recognized that passage as a messianic prophecy or having to do with the Messiah. And they see here the promise that the Messiah would be high and lifted up. In the following verses, it's going to talk about him being beaten, being despised, being stricken, being afflicted, and being rejected. That is where the rabbis came up with the idea there might be 
two different messiahs, one who is high and exalted and one who is a suffering servant. We know that it is two different comings. Now verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance, speaking of Jesus, was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told to them, they will see. And what had not been heard, they will understand, speaking of the gospel. It says there in verse 14, there a prophecy about Jesus, that he was marred beyond any man, meaning he was unrecognizable after the beating he took. His face was so disfigured, he was so torn to pieces, that he did not look like a person, is what that prophecy is saying. Forget about all these pictures you see painted in the churches of Jesus upon the cross with a small drip of blood coming down the side of his head. It's ridiculous. It's almost blasphemous. The reality of what Jesus endured is that he was beaten to a bloody pulp. I want us to make sense of that now as we move to Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was, speaking of Jesus now, prophecy 700 years before, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Those two words can also be translated, a man of pains and acquainted with sickness. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. It says there that Jesus would be despised and forsaken. Now look in verse 4. It reads in the New American Standard, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. In the Hebrew, that word grief can be translated sickness. In the margin of the New American Standard and Revised Standard Version, it says there, or sickness. The NIV translates it infirmities. So surely our sickness or our infirmities he bore. The word in Hebrew is holy, not holy, but holy. And it simply means a disease or sickness. Surely our sicknesses, our diseases, our infirmities he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Again, if you look in the margin of the New American Standard, it says that that word sorrows can also be translated pains. It is the Hebrew word makob, which means pain, suffering, and sorrow. So he carried our pain and our suffering. There is healing in the suffering of Jesus Christ. In the same way that he bore our sins upon the cross. Verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. In the same way that he died a vicarious death or in our place or in substitution for our sins. In his sufferings, I want to make sense of this for you. In his beating, in the tearing of his flesh, in his scourging, there is healing available for our flesh. This verse teaches that the sufferings of Jesus are able to provide for us physical healing. I will prove it to you right now. Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. The Holy Spirit gives us the interpretation and application of Isaiah 53, 4. Matthew 8, 16 and 17. 
And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill in order that was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, He himself took our infirmities and he carried away our diseases. The New Testament says that when people came to Jesus and they were sick and they were healed, it was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 4, that he would carry away sickness in the same way that he carries away our sin, buries it in the deepest sea, removes it as far as the east is from the west. In the sufferings of Jesus, there is healing bought for us. Think about it logically. Sickness and pain are a product of the fall. The suffering and death of Jesus Christ are to redeem humanity from the fall. Sickness and pain are a product of the fall. The cross and the sufferings of Jesus Christ redeem us from the outcome of the fall. I want you to look in verse 5 now as we see it unfold further. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions. Vicarious atonement, he took our place on the cross, pay for our sins, and by his scourging, we are healed in the same way. Scourging in the, in the Hebrew there literally means bruise. It's translated different ways in different um, translations. The NIV says wounds. By his wounds, we are healed. The Old King James and the New King James say by his stripes, we are healed. And it, it doesn't mean simply the scourging, though that is a part of it. It means that everything that Jesus underwent physically, all of the suffering that he endured up to what happened and including what happened upon the cross, all of that bruising, by his scourging, by his bruising, by his stripes, we are healed. Now the New Testament quotes this as well and applies it for us as well. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. We have it on the PowerPoint. Peter writes, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Now, when I read that, and to me it sounds like we are healed in a spiritual sense there. It's speaking about sin. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you are healed. There are those within Christianity, people that love the Lord, good scholars who say that speaks of physical healing according to the Greek word which is used many times in the New Testament for physical healing. I believe by context it's very clear here that it's speaking of spiritual healing. So we have Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5 that say by his sufferings, there is some sort of healing for us. We have the New Testament saying that it is both, at the very least, it is both physical healing and it is spiritual healing. Matthew 8 and 1 Peter 2. I want to make sense of the sufferings of Jesus Christ for you. The pain that he underwent was not meaningless. It was not arbitrary. It was not in the mind of God senseless. When his body was broken, we are able to be healed. The whole of us, body, mind, and spirit. 
Jesus suffered that we might be made whole spiritually and physically. It makes sense. As I said before, sin and sickness are the work of Satan. Sin and sickness are the work of Satan. Number one, in a general sense, because of the fall. Satan tempted man. Man fell. When the fell came, the curse came. And that's when sin and sickness entered into the world. Before that, there was no death. There was no sickness. We also know from the New Testament that directly Satan can make people ill. Sin and sickness are the result of Satan. Righteousness and healing are the work of Christ. Healing spiritually, being made righteous, and healing physically. The atonement bought for us complete freedom from sin and complete freedom from sickness. But you need to realize that the benefits of atonement, the benefits of salvation, are only now beginning to be played out in our lives. Salvation in the whole is a process beginning when we are born again, ending when we are glorified at the coming of Jesus Christ, when we are translated in the twinkling of an eye at the rapture of the church, when we receive a brand new body. Remember, we studied that in our series on prophecy. At that time, every benefit of salvation is given to us. There will be no more temptation. There will be no more death. Remember that Jesus conquered death upon the cross, but we still die, don't we? You see, the ultimate fulfilling of our salvation is when we see him face to face. There'll be no more sin, no more sickness, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying. Right now, we experience some of the benefits of salvation. Sin no longer has power over us, but don't we suffer under temptation? And don't we experience sin even to this day? Romans said it, or Paul said it in Romans chapter 7. He said, the things that I know are wrong and I don't want to do, I find myself doing them over and over again. Wretched that man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. At the rapture of the church, that will be over with. No more temptation. No more failure. And it's the same thing with sickness. At the rapture of the church, that will be done with. But for now we still experience from time to time sickness. But here's the hope. Just as we don't always have to sin, no temptation has overcome you except for that which is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not let you be tempted beyond that which you're able to bear, but with the temptation will provide the way out that you might stand up underneath it, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Just as we don't always have to sin because the power of sin is broken, we don't always have to be sickness because the power of sickness is broken. Jesus holds the keys to life. And so sometimes God gives us a foreshadowing of the fulfillment of our salvation and heals our infirmities now, carries them away now. When we ask the Lord to heal at this moment in history, sometimes he does. He doesn't always heal. I don't know why that is. It's God's own purposes. That's for the completion of salvation. But sometimes he heals. Is there anybody here that has been healed by the Lord? Raise your hand. Okay, I want you people to look around you. Keep your hands up. These are people who are saying, God has healed me. I'm including my hand in that. God has healed me. We could hear story after story. Is there anybody here who has asked the Lord to heal them and he has not? I'm putting my hand up. I want you to look around. There's just as many people here who have asked the Lord to heal and the Lord has not. 
Now, even for those who have been healed, understand it is only temporary. All healings at this time are temporary. You are still going to die. All healing is temporary. When we see him face to face, the healing will be complete because our salvation is complete and we shall live with the Lord and we shall be even as he is. It's a glorious plan that is unfolding in our midst. Isn't it good to know, according to the suffering of Jesus, which is the fulfillment of prophecy, that we can come to him now for whatever we need. If you need spiritual healing, the forgiveness of sins, cleansing, newness, you can come to the Lord. If you need physical healing, physical strength, you can come to the Lord. He may not always do it right away. It's not like we get saved and the next day we're perfect. It doesn't work that way, huh? Wish it did. Wish it did. In fact, we're never perfect in this lifetime until we go to be with him. But he is faithful to complete the work that he's begun in you. And the moment you come to him and say, Lord, work in me, he will begin a work and he will complete it at the great and glorious day of our salvation, the coming of the groom for the bride. What do you have need of today? Come to Jesus Christ. He bought it all in his sufferings and he gives freely to those who are thirsty. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this word today. We thank you, Jesus, that you are all sufficient, that in you is everything that we need. And Lord, as we worship you now and reflect and come before you and get prayer, I ask that you would show us what we have need of. So often we, we don't even know. Holy Spirit, would you come and, and just reveal where we ought to be thirsting and hungering for you. And then, Lord, would you give us faith to receive it from you? The knowledge to ask, the faith to ask, and the faith to receive. Lord, I pray today that as people ask you to forgive them of, your, uh, to forgive them of their sins, that you would do that. Thank you that you will. Your word says you will not turn away anyone that comes to you looking for that. Pray for Christians that feel just condemned and full of so much shame that you would cleanse them today. Pray for those that are bound up and feel swayed by the power of sin that you would exert the power of the cross in their lives today and manifest victory. I pray for those who would be seeking emotional and physical healing that they would come to the throne of grace today and ask you and say, Abba, Father, heal me and that you would heal. Thank you that you are able, Lord, Thank you that you are able. I'm going to ask the prayer team to come forward and be up here.